Welcome to the Savage Leader Podcast, where I interview leaders from all walks of life so that you can walk away with tips to apply to your life and your career. But this isn't your traditional leadership podcast, because I believe that leadership tips come from successful entrepreneurs and business executives, of course, but they also come from unexpected places, like from Navy SEALs, successful professional athletes, sports coaches, musicians, entertainers, and more. So let's dive right in to today's episode. My hope is you walk away with something tangible that you can apply immediately to your life and your career. Today's guest on the Savage Leader podcast is Mike Lynn. Mike is the co-founder and CFO of Prey.com. Prey.com is driven by a mission to solve society's biggest challenges by building tools that inspire people to grow their faith and cultivate their community. Before co-founding Prey.com, Mike was a private wealth advisor for Merrill Lynch. Mike, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Really excited. Yeah, I'm excited. You have a really interesting background. And, and before we get into what you're up to now, I'd just love to go back in time just in terms of who was little Mike? What was Mike up to? Where'd you grow up? What kinds of things were you interested in? Yeah, so I'm from this little city called Green Bay, Wisconsin. If you've ever been, there's only one thing to do, and it's to go to the football games. That's it. There's not a lot other things to do there. And uh, yeah, when I was growing up, my father worked in a paper mill for 49 years. And so I was raised from my dad grinding at a blue collar job for 49 years straight. It was one of those jobs where you literally open the same door to go to work. So you're walking through the same door to go to work for 49 years straight. I don't hear much of those anymore, those stories. But uh, watching your father grind like that so hard really just shapes you as a person, really just shapes your work ethic, really just admired you know, his grind. My background was Catholic. So I was raised Catholic and you know, the Midwest is very faith-based. And so my upbringing was going to church, going to CCD and being confirmed Catholic. And when I was younger, you know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. So I was the first person in my family to go to college right out of high school and graduate. And so I went to the University of Wisconsin. And my plan was to be a marketing major. That's what I wanted to do. I was like, hey, let's go marketing at Wisconsin. This is a big deal. And things didn't end up that way. Uh, Things changed for me. All that all started was my parents got divorced while I was in college. And, you know, when you get a divorce, there's a separation of assets, right? One family member, you know, gets the divorce decree and they have to go and take half their assets. And what do they do with it? Well, usually they go to a financial advisor with it, right? Well, my mom did that and she ended up getting swindled out of the money. The advisor ended up giving her bad advice and swindling her. And that had a a big impact on me. Because I didn't know much about money. I didn't grow up with money. And so seeing my mom, you know, get swindled like that really changed my path. And I said, that's it. I could never let that happen to my mom or my family or my friends ever again. I'm changing my major to finance. And that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So that changed the path for me. And I, I spent 13 years at Merrill Lynch on the corporate side, managing almost three quarters of a billion dollars of personal wealth over 13 years. And I thought that was the path I was going to be in at Merrill Lynch for, for my life. Didn't end up that way, though. Yeah, it's interesting. It's just this um, of a transcendent moment, but just a really poignant moment for you in terms of seeing your mom lose that, your, her assets and then just creating that sense of purpose. Just, do you mind just telling me a little bit about how that just came to fruition and how you use that as fuel to, to guide your success in, in managing such 
a significant amount of people's private wealth. Yeah. You know, when you don't have a lot of money and somebody takes that from you, it hurts even worse, right? Because now you really have nothing. And my mom's a sweet lady. She's a sweet Christian woman. And for someone to do something to that to her, it really hurt me as well. And I said, okay, what can I do to not let that happen to her? Like, how am I going to prevent that? It kind of just worked out that I had this talent in numbers and I was able to just shift my focus to go, okay, I got to learn everything I can about how to manage money and what finance means. And what are these people doing to protect their assets that I couldn't help protect my mom? You know, thank God my mom's in a good spot now. That's the, the good part of this story is like, she's in a great spot and being by her side uh, after that event, I really learned a lot about one, how to manage people's money, but also like a personal story behind that, where it's like my mom, like I'm managing her money and I'm protecting her personally now. And I know what I'm doing. Yeah. It's interesting as I, I think and talk a lot about this concept of greatness and to me, that's the intersection of purpose and success. And it's interesting. I'd, I'd be curious how you would have defined that for yourself back then. I mean, you had a, obviously a sense of purpose. You could have chosen probably a different, a number of different ways to live that out. Just, I was curious just at, at that point in time, what would greatness have looked like to you? Yeah, I think it's just the complete confidence in knowing that my mom's going to be protected. That's what I wanted to achieve at that point. I wanted to make sure that I felt super confident that my decisions were going to make her safe. And that's what I wanted to do. So going through the the thought process of right now, what I'm trying to do is just make sure I know enough about how to manage money that my friends and family can rely on me, that I will not lose their money. I will protect their money and let's grow it too. That was my mindset. And after I accomplished that, then I go, okay, what's the next horizon? And the next horizon well, is it for me was, well, who's the best at this game? Who's the best at you know the financial advisor space? What do they look like? Who are those people? And then I started learning about, well, for me, now that I really feel confident about how to protect people's money, who are the best people out there and what do they do? And that's when I learned about this uh, private bank and investment group at Merrill Lynch, which was where I was at, where they deal with only the ultra high net worth individuals. So you have to have actually $10 million in an account to work there in this group. And so that was the next achievement for me. It was, okay, my mom's taken care of, my family's taken care of. You know, I'm pretty ambitious. Let's let's go see if I can become one of those top people. And that was the next step for me. And how did you use that sense of just that drive, that purpose to to ultimately allow you to to gain such success within that private banking organization? Yeah, I think it all comes back to one summer when I was in Green Bay for work. My father, I think it was freshman year of college, he said, Hey, come back and work at the paper mill, which is where he worked. I want you to work at the paper mill for a summer. It was 12-hour swing shifts. And what a 12-hour swing shift means is that you work 12 hours a day, three days in a row, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Then you have a couple days off. And then you work 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. for three days. So it's a swing of a shift. That's why they call it swing shift. So it really messes with your sleeping, by the way, when you're working 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Then you got to flip it. And he had me do that because he wanted to remind me to never come back. 
He wanted to remind me, don't fail. Don't come work here. This is not what you want to do for the rest of your life. And that's not a slight, by the way, at the people that work there, because those are incredible people. And I've met a lot of really incredible people. It was more of, hey, you have this opportunity. You're in college. Go make something of it. Go do something with it. And so that drive really came from him was kind of saying, hey, you can go achieve what you want to achieve now. Don't be me. Don't work in this paper mill for 49 years. That's not what you're supposed to do. And so that's kind of why it kind of flipped the switch was, you know, after I was able to really hone in this, you know, these basic money managing skills, it was like, all right, what's next? Like my dad thinks I'm great. Maybe I am great. Maybe I should go somewhere else. Yeah, it's interesting is it's um, helpful from our parents and just wanting something more for us, but just like what a great way of him giving you permission, right? To go and do something different, take some chances, just a, what, a, what a great, powerful motivator versus, hey, let's keep him in our own sphere of, of how I grew up and how my friends and colleagues and family grew up. Just like what a nice nudge and supportive dad that is. Fantastic. So let's fast forward back to the, just the work as a financial advisor at Merrill. Like what transpired to just encourage you to look at other opportunities and end up co-founding Prey? Yeah, so I think there's a point where you become, I would say, you feel confident in what you're doing and it becomes more of a, you know, what's next? What's on the horizon of what I'm doing? And, you know, I had spent 13 years at Merrill Lynch and near the end of my career, you know, I mentioned before, there's this, there's this group that you can get into that deals with the ultra and high, high net worth clients. And while I was there, I started saying, you know what, how do I become one of these clients? Because I won't be able to be one of these clients working here. It's very rare to make $10 million in liquid cash as a financial advisor, even at the highest echelons. It's very difficult. And I started realizing these are incredible people that my clients are. These are business owners. You know, There's some family wealth in there, of course. But they've done some inc- pretty incredible things. And I just remember, I think it was year 10. And I said, how am I going to become one of these clients? And so that's when I said, all right, I got to do something different. And I went to USC to get my MBA. And this is kind of almost like an oxymoron, but I went for their entrepreneurship program. And as an entrepreneur now, it's kind of funny to say, like, you can't really go get your MBA in entrepreneurship and think that that's going to give you the tool set to be an entrepreneur. You actually just got to try being an entrepreneur. And so I think that's the one thing I learned was like, you can't actually book smart your way into being a successful entrepreneur. And so my path was, I'll just go to USC. I'll go to their entrepreneurship program and I'll figure it out. Somehow, some way, an idea will just come to me. And it never happened. There was no idea that I got on my own while I was at USC. But what did happen was I started hanging around the startup culture in LA and hang around people that did not go to USC for their entrepreneurship program that were just like people that grinded and were like, I'm going to start a business from scratch, from nothing. And there was this culture shift when Silicon Valley came to Silicon Beach, which is essentially the name of what LA was back in the, I would say the 2016 on. 
is there was this really a big hype of tech companies that were starting in the Silicon Beach or Santa Monica area. Think of like Snapchat and Bird. There's a lot of these companies that grew in that little ecosystem. And being around it is where I started getting this itch of like, hey, I could be my own entrepreneur. Let me keep talking and be around these people. And that's how I met my business partner, Steve, was going to a startup event. And so the culture, the shift of just being around different people with different mindsets really got me comfortable. Like, hey, I could be an entrepreneur. Like, this sounds great. And I didn't have the idea. My business partner, Steve, had it. And when he told me about it, I did realize that's exactly the idea. That's the idea that I need to go forward with because it really just resonated with me. What was that moment when you learned what that idea was? So it was the summer of 2016. And, you know, Pray.com got started through a tragedy. My business partner was a CEO of an aerial production company in LA. So there's a bunch of like helicopters and aircraft that they worked with. And his business partner in that business died in a plane crash on September 11th, 2015. And, you know, that had a transformational moment for Steve because he had never experienced a tragedy like that before. And, you know, Steve and I were friends. And when he told me about his business partner dying, I was just, I, you know, it was a shock to me to have somebody die that way and somebody so young. And I just remember going to the memorial service that he put together for his business partner. And this was a, you know, big event. All of Hollywood was there because this company filmed in Hollywood from aerial positions, right? Off of helicopters and in fixed wing aircraft and drones. So this is a high class event, expensive to put on. And Steve was a young CEO. And I just remember him really being just incredibly gracious and stoic and leading this company through a really tragic event. And, you know, I said, you know, if there's a way I can work with this guy, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to work with this guy. And in the summer of 2016, I had called him up to find out what he was going to do next with his life because he was transitioning out of this company. And he said, come up to Westlake Village and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And I don't know if you know anything about New York hours, but when you live in LA, the market's open at 6.30 a.m. So I'm in the office always at like 6 a.m. The last thing I want to do is drive anywhere the night before, especially to Westlake Village from you know Brentwood, which essentially is an hour and a half drive north, if you know anything about LA traffic pre-COVID. And I just told Steve, like, I don't think I'm coming. Like, that's too much of a drive. And you know what's cool is God told me you're going. He said, you got to go. And so I'm glad I did because the first thing he said to me was pray.com, the digital destination for faith. That's what he said when I showed up. He didn't even say hi. He's like, I'm doing pray.com, the digital destination for faith. And it just hit me right away. I was like, wait a minute. Did you just say pray.com? Like no way you have that domain name. It doesn't even make any sense. Like, I don't know how you got that. But when he said the digital destination for faith, like I'm Catholic, what you're talking about actually matters to me. And we just sat there at this pizza shop in Westlake Village, coming up with all the ways we were to make pray.com the digital destination for faith. So three hours later, we're closing down this pizza shop. And I told him, I go, listen, 
this is everything I've ever been looking for. I'm going to leave my 13-year career, all my clients, all my licenses, all my designations, everything I've ever built. And when you build a business in financial services like that, it's a newitized business. So you're pretty much set for life after you build an annuitized business because it just keeps renewing and you build these relationships, which is hard to do. You know, I knew as soon as he said to me that that was what I was going to do. And he was the only person that I was willing to leave my 13-year career to work with because I had known him for so long and I knew the type of character he was. There's actually a proverb, 2717. You, you probably heard it, didn't know it was a proverb, but it's iron sharpens iron and one man's sharpens another's. So Steve was going to make me a better person. And I knew that, you know, on the finance side, I could help him too. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating on so many different levels. I think one is, I think people generally think of entrepreneurship as just, they have to have the spark of an idea. And obviously you highlight a different path, which is, I want to be in this space and looking for someone that you truly believe in, obviously with an idea, but probably even more so the person, of course, the, the idea was there as well. But I think the other thing you mentioned is you hear a lot about people leaving a job to start a company, but the risk, I mean, I guess if you're investing your life savings is or time off the, the treadmill, if you will, but most times you can actually get back on that horse. You can get a similar job. But what you talked about is like this annuitized business, you're walking away from just a lifelong or career long income stream. Like that's an incredible jump for you. I mean, just, just talk me through just that path in terms of how you walked down that path and made the decisions. I can only imagine just what people were telling you, especially within your past firm. Yeah. It's a, thank you for that question. Number one is 90% of all financial advisors fail after the first year. So if you want to become a financial advisor and you're like, Hey, I want to start this career. 90% of anyone that wants to do that will fail after the first year. And so getting to the five-year mark is kind of the hurdle in the industry. Like once you get to five years, you're pretty much set because it's super hard to hit all the hurdles to get to five years. And 13 years in, I was just like, I, I had done everything I thought I could do. I had gotten to the highest level in the advisory world. And I just knew that that wasn't going to be the thing that I was going to do for the rest of my life. And there's a really interesting quote. It's a little bit long and it's kind of funny. But if you know the comedian Bill Burr, here's a quote. Realize that sleeping on a futon when you're 30 is not the worst thing. You know what's worse? Sleeping in a king bed next to a wife you're not really in love with, but for some reason you're married and you got a couple of kids and you got a job you hate. You'll be laying there fantasizing about sleeping on a futon. There's no risk when you go after a dream. There's a tremendous amount of risk to playing it safe. To me, I was playing it safe after 13 years. I had done it. There was not much more risk that I was really introducing in my life. But I wasn't that happy. I wasn't that happy. I had done everything I could do. I just knew that entrepreneurship was something that I, I needed to do. You know, as soon as I started Pray.com with Steve, I was ready to talk about the financial model. And he's like, no, 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 no. Let's get back to the mission. And I was like, what do you mean mission? He's like, we got things to do first. Let's get talk about the vision of this company, the mission. And let's talk about the values that we're going to instill. And that was a surprise to me. 
I didn't think entrepreneurs as the first thing they did was to talk about the vision, the mission, the core values. And having him tell me like, hey, this is how you do it. You know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. You don't start with the PL. You start about what kind of business are we going to make? And so that really mission team self mindset, mission team self is how we operate the company and how we've been operating it, you know, for the last six years. That's what's exciting to me is really following that mental model. And that's what I do personally. You know, that's what I do in work is what do we do? What's the mission here? And and that's the first thing that happens. And then the team and then self. Tell me about just how you use that mental model in your own personal life or just even as your role as a leader. Yeah, it's a great question. So first as a leader, we all have to be doing something for the better good, right? There has to be a mission out there that you're you're all working together on. If you started with yourself, which is the end, right? It's mission team self. If you started with self, then I'm going to do things that's the best thing for me, right? It's not the best for the team that you're part of. And it's certainly not the best for the company. If I'm going to make me number one, unlikely it's probably going to be also number one for the team and probably unlikely number one for the mission. So you got to start with mission first. And if we're all aligned in the mission, right? We all think, hey, how do we make pray.com how do we help have, have people at pray.com grow faith and cultivate community, which is our mission at pray.com? How do we do that? If we all align together as a team, if we all row the same boat towards this mission, we're going to get there a lot faster. And so that's why it has to start with the number one thing, which is the mission. Personally, on the personal side, like I'm not married. I wanted to be happy. And I wanted to, for myself, I wanted a great career and I wanted to get all these things done. But when I was younger, my father said to me, he goes, listen, you got to have kids. It's going to make you super happy. And being his kid, I was like, oh, thanks, dad. Like, you're telling me I make you happy. That's cool. But he's like, make sure you have kids. And I didn't want to end up divorced like my dad was, right? I didn't want to end up divorced. And so I, I held off and I held off. I'm 41 right now. Don't tell my girlfriend, but she's going to get proposed to shortly. And that's part of my mission is like, hey, I want to have children and I want a legacy. And, you know, in a personal life, like it's it's time to start doing what the mission is. And the mission's like, hey, I want to have a legacy. And part of that legacy is having children and finding a partner that I love. And so like that's the first part is like, how do I accomplish that mission? And part of that mission is having a team. You know, I gotta find somebody that loves me enough that wants to marry me and that wants to have kids with me. That's the team. And on the self side is like, hey, for me to do this, I'm going to have to make sure that you know, I've got my business side taken care of, my personal side, am I healthy, right? Am I happy? Because you don't want to get into a relationship if you're not personally happy either. So that was the, you know, the framework is like, where do I want to go personally? Who am I going to get there with? And am I ready to get there with that person? So that's kind of how I think about it on the personal side. Yeah, something that actually struck me the last time we talked was just in terms of becoming the CFO and, and co-founder of Pray.com is you said you never really consider yourself a leader. I'm just curious what you meant by that. So when you're a financial advisor, you're on your own. Like you get the banner of Merrill Lynch in your background. You can tell people you work at Merrill Lynch, but the reality is you actually compete with everybody in your office. So you're kind of solo. You're this solo person 
and you're out there, you're just getting clients, getting clients. I didn't really have a bunch of people that, that worked for me. There was, you know, an assistant and they, and you work with them, right? And the firm assigns you an assistant. You got to find the one you want. But it was more about me talking to my clients. It was like one-on-one relationships. And, you know, if I took a Myers-Briggs and it told me I was an introvert. And I was like, hmm, I'm an introvert, yet my job all day is talking to people. That's odd. Did I take that test right? That seems odd to me. That can't be right because it's not what I do every day. I'm literally at social events all day long talking to people. And, you know, what I learned later on is this personality test and my job, there's a reason they conflicted. It's because actually I am an introvert, but because of my job, I was becoming what I needed to be to be successful. And as soon as I left Merrill Lynch and I started Pray.com, I never had a leadership position. I never had to be a leader because I was a solo performer. When you're an entrepreneur and you're starting your first business or your second business, you have to lead people. You don't really have a choice. You don't get to choose. No, I just want to be in the background. Once you get the founder title, which is not really a functional title, it's just the thing you get, there's an expectation you're going to lead people and inspire people. And you don't get to sit on the sidelines, no matter what your Meyer Briggs test says, that you're an introvert. It doesn't matter. People are looking at you and saying, what do you want me to do? Tell me what to do. And the first thing you have to go back to, right? Again, the mission. I'll tell you what to do. We got we to accomplish this mission. And my personality actually changed because of it. I actually went and took another personality test and my personality actually changed after I worked at Prey.com because I, I had to form myself into being okay with, you know, being a leader. And, you know, I think the strength that's required to get out of your comfort zone is one of the, was one of the hardest things. Like I had never fired people before or laid people off. And as a, you know, you have to be a leader and be strong in it and make decisions that, you know, people don't want to do because they're uncomfortable with it. So for me, I'm not a, I was not a natural leader, but you, you get forced to do it when you're leading a company. You don't have a choice. It's interesting. It's not just of founding companies, but I find so many people continue to progress in an organization. Yes, there's opportunities to be an individual contributor, and that's it's great when you have those opportunities, but many times it requires them to become a people leader and to manage other people. So they're always perhaps not the most willing of sorts to become that people leader. It's like, what did you practically speaking do to get better as a leader, to learn how to deal with tough situations like letting people go, to align people around a mission? Like, What were some of the things, practically speaking, you did to learn on the fly, essentially? Yeah. Number one is take advice from people that are in your orbit. So I started seeking out people that are leaders and organizations that actually gave me advice of like, hey, here's the cadence of when you talk to people. You got to talk to people every day. You got to inspire people every week. You got to have these quarterly meetings. So number one, you have to have an operational cadence of communication. And so we follow an operational communication. Every single day, we have an all cheers stand up, we call it, where everybody in the company, every single morning gets together and they actually congratulate each other on one thing somebody in the organization did every day. So number one, you got to be talking a lot. And you got to be communicating and setting up these meeting rhythms so you can constantly communicate. 
And then you have to have, that'll be a daily communication rhythm, but also a weekly one. And the weekly one is around the leaders in your company. So you got to have a check-in every single week with the leaders of your company. What's going on in this department, right? You have to command that respect. And it's really more about respect for the mission, not respect necessarily for me, but respect for the mission. And a lot of those tools were just from talking to advisors. One of our first companies that backed us was Science. They're an accelerator. And we just learned a lot from them in terms of how to run your company. What are the things that we should be doing? And how to communicate, how to talk to people. And especially in the tech space, like I had never hired an engineer before. I don't know how to talk to an engineer. So how do I communicate with that person? And part of the communicating with them is leaving them alone. They need quiet time. They have to focus versus, you know, your salespeople, you got to be talking to them. They'll feel neglected if you're not talking to them. Talking to people that have done it before really saves you a lot of time and you get a lot of really great notes. Definitely mentors are powerful. The interesting example of just having internal ex- or mentors as well, really um, supportive and can drive that ongoing growth. But like, what else do you do? Like, what else are you working on now to become a, a better leader? Obviously, as organizations grow and change, new skills, new behaviors are needed. Like, what do you do day to day, month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year to get better and to be that much better of a CEO and co-founder? Yeah, so I was never a CEO or CFO before. So this is the first time working on the corporate finance side. And part of being a leader is being competent in your position. And starting a company, you might start a company going, hey, I've never been a CFO, I've never been a CEO. I need to show competency here. And how do I show competency? You got to learn. So a part of our business we just started was an enterprise SaaS sales model. So enterprise SaaS sales model, software as a service. It's a brand new thing for me. I've never experienced that before. We were a consumer subscription company. Now we're consumer subscription and enterprise SaaS. And you know, for me to be a leader, I have to actually know what I'm talking about. So what are the things that I do to do that? Number one, I enrolled in a class. I enrolled in an enterprise SaaS class. So right now I'm in a class, Tuesdays and Thursdays, learning about enterprise SaaS. This is a commitment I'm making to learn my business. But it's also a commitment I'm making to be a leader that I have to be confident in what I'm actually talking about. And so I'm going to school to learn about it. In addition, I lean on our advisors, our investors. Hey, I've never done enterprise SaaS before. Who can you introduce me to that's a CFO at our stage, at our next stage, and the stage after? And so getting advice from our you know investors specifically around enterprise SaaS, I want to talk to those people. How do they lead their organizations through this? So you got to be comfortable with saying, I don't know what I'm doing and telling people you don't know what you're doing so that they can actually help you. I think the worst thing you can do is try to do it on your own and try to figure it out because you're just going to slow down not only yourself, you're going to slow down the team, you're going to slow down the mission. The practical thing is like, take a class, take a course. Yes, the practical advice is really that much more critical. But you mentioned something interesting and just the ability to say, I don't know. So I actually had a a former CEO, Bradley, on the podcast recently, and he talked about that as an important step for him, becoming a a first-time CEO and and just learning. And he went from a private company to a public company, I think back to a private company. And just, just so much of that requires saying that, but requires a ton of 
vulnerability and humility. I mean, how do you walk that path? I mean, just, I'm just curious because I want to help other people who are trying to figure out a way to actually do that and doing it in a meaningful way to, to be able to say, I don't know, is part of their growth path. Yeah. So I was at an EO event, Entrepreneurs Organization, last night. Uh, it was an introduction to their organization. I'd never been part of it before. And, you know, I walked in and it was really interesting. It was all new perspectives or new prospects to being part of this entrepreneur organization. And the first thing I heard from the individual organizing the event, he goes, you know, it's not about telling people all the great stuff you've done. It's about telling people what you did, whether it was good or bad, and people can learn. And it's really kind of removing the ego of like, oh, I'm so special. Like I, I raise money from Silicon Valley and here's all the returns I'm getting. And it's easy to fall in that trap because it's kind of a defense mechanism of like, hey, see, I'm important. See how important I am. See all the things I've done. Like you should respect me. And the reality is uh, if everyone always gave their highlights, you would think that everyone's perfect. And nobody's going to try to help you. If you're, if you're telling everybody you're perfect, why would anyone want to help you? And so one thing I learned early on is to just tell people, I don't know what I'm doing here. I actually don't know. And yes, I, I might have raised a bunch of money from Silicon Valley, and we might have some really great you know, advisors. But if you can't admit that you don't know what you're doing, first of all, people aren't going to tell you I can help you because you're not even telling them that you're having a problem. So you're not going to get help. And, you know, just from a vulnerability standpoint, people want to help other people. If you tell me there's a problem and I can help you, like I actually feel good about helping you with that problem. But if you keep it inside and you don't tell anybody, well, one, I won't actually feel good because I can't provide any advice to you. But two, you're not going to get any help. And so early on in our company, when we didn't know anything about social media and building a social media app and all the metrics around it, if we didn't ask for help and we weren't vulnerable, like we've never done this before, we certainly wouldn't be where we are today. The issue is the, you know, with social media right now on Instagram, on all these platforms, it's always a highlight reel. So it's being vulnerable to that. That is difficult. It's hard. Yeah. And getting out of that highlight reel mentality, it's hard as a leader because I think a lot about being confident and competent and so much of the time, I think people assume they have to have that ego. They have to show only their wins. They have to be that impenetrable leader. But you give another great example of using, I don't know, being vulnerable, checking the ego as a way to actually get help. But also in terms of just, you just connect with people more. If you're trying to get people engaged and just, just think about just an average interaction with someone, someone who's bragging, talking about their highlights, they're, just, they're a little bit less likable too, you know, versus actually someone who you know, opens up a little bit and shares some of those struggles, some of those challenges beyond just, hey, no one's going to even help you. That's right. And I gravitate towards people that are real. And being real means not everything's perfect 24-7. And if your guard is up where you have to look impenetrable, that's not somebody I want to hang out with because life isn't that way. Look at what the pandemic's done to people mentally. People are hurting right now. And I'd be shocked to find anybody that says, I'm doing great 100%. And if you are meeting those people, they're probably lying to you. There's been obviously a lot of conversation around bringing your whole self to work, but it's also bringing your whole self to your life, you know, not bringing that highlight reel to your friendships. It's just, it's just, just a great way to just to connect in a much more deep and meaningful manner with people. And then obviously the pandemic just 
people being on zoom and seeing their dogs and their cats running across their desk and hearing kids screaming and realizing what people were actually juggling. It, it just brings so much more of ourselves to the workplace, which provides some challenges, but also just huge opportunities to connect with people. Oh yeah. I'd say the number one thing we've learned through the pandemic is that mental health is the hidden pandemic now. So like physical health was the pandemic, right? We're talking about, you know, physically being hurt by this virus, but there's a mental health pandemic that's going on. And there's a lot of companies that are stepping up in this space. Even just look at calm.com as an example. They moved from a consumer only platform to actually a B2B enterprise platform. They're actually selling calm.com to corporations so that companies can actually get access to mental health, which they're providing a platform. And we feel the same way. We feel the same way that there needs to be access to this, these services that can be on demand 24-7, that you can get help anytime that you need. And that was something important for us as we learned through the pandemic that you know people want access to resources and they're now not ashamed to ask for it. And companies realize that too. And you know, even internally to, to our employees, use pray.com you know, use these resources to help you out. And I think more and more corporations are realizing that the health of their workforce isn't just providing them, you know, the traditional health benefits of like, you can go to your doctor or, Hey, there's a psychologist or therapist you can go to, which is great, but you need a resource you can access 24 seven. And then it relates to you. Something interesting. I don't think we've talked about this, but you know, there's like a utilization where people use their benefits, like what percentage of people use their benefits, right? So like, let's say you're part of a company and you have all these health benefits, what percent of actually use all the benefits that, that are available? And it's actually pretty low. The percentage of people that actually use some of the benefits that are provided them is low, probably because they don't know all about them. But the other part is they're not really great tools. So like a traditional mental health platform that you might get through your employer it might be a website and very few people actually utilize it. Part of it is it, does it really connect with you? And something that we found when people use pray.com is when they use it, they're actually experiencing it better because they actually relate to the content. They're already religious in their private space. So the fact that we're providing mental health resources and it's in a religious kind of a religious subject matter they understand that, hey, I already know, you know the Bible or I know some of the Bible. Now you're getting, giving the mental health platform around it because we have meditations, we have you know, daily prayers. People can consume this around a subject they know and like, and we do it in a way that's therapeutic. So now people are utilizing it more because they actually can relate to the content versus, you know, hey, just go read this PowerPoint slide on how to have a better life. That's not really resonating with people. They don't resonate with that subject matter. Yeah, context is key. I know with the Calm app, just having people like LeBron James on the app and speaking to them through the lens of high performance, it's like meeting people where they are to help them from a mental health point of view. That's exactly right. Mike, I appreciate your time today, sharing your wisdom and your insights. It's an in incredible career path and, and career journey. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast. My hope is you are walking away with tactics that you can apply to become a better leader in your life and in your career. If you're looking for additional insight and tactics, 
be sure to check out my book titled The Savage Leader, 13 Principles to Become a Better Leader from the Inside Out. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and I would truly appreciate it if you would leave a review and also rate the podcast. Thanks, and see you all in the next episode.